a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering evangelical. What could go wrong? This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast with Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and Jason Elam. Welcome in, everybody. Welcome to a brand new edition of Messy Spirituality. In my mind, I've been calling this one Messy Spirituality 2.0 because we have a huge upgrade for season four. And I am so, so, so excited to introduce our two permanent co-hosts to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. I'm going to let you both introduce yourselves. Hey, everyone. My name is Kyle Butler, and uh, I'm super excited to be part of this. I am a former pastor, so my perspective will be uh, pretty interesting, I hope. And uh, I also hope that over time, you'll get to know my heart, which is, uh, you know, just a heart of, of compassion towards people, empathy, and, and just love. I, I really feel, you know, every day that I get up that my purpose and my, my, my calling, so to speak, if I can use that word without sounding churchy, is to help people. And so in this space that I am in right now, the way I feel like I can help people is by presenting them with some alternative things to think about that might help them understand and see themselves as the divine, beautiful, incredible love beings that they are. So this is where I am. This is who I am. This is what I do. And uh, I'm just happy to be part of this. Well, man, we're so excited to have you as a co-host of this podcast. I have thought of you as the Prince of Positivity <laughs> online for a very long time. You are an awesome encourager. Everything I've ever seen you post, everything I've ever heard you say, even when you were on the guest on this podcast years ago, was so encouraging and so uplifting. And uh, I am so glad to have you on this journey Thank with you. me and... Hi, I'm Lola. I used to be known as Ashley, and I am an ex-evangelical Christian. I escaped the Church of Christ cult back in 2019. I am a visual artist and hairdresser from Birmingham, Alabama, and my deconstruction began when I divorced an abusive partner and began to question why I received backlash from the church while my toxic counterpart did not. I discovered um, this podcast actually amid my kind of war-torn face and happily discovered that I was not alone in my faith deconstruction. So I, I grew up in a religious uh, environment where a lot of things about myself had to be repressed or destroyed. Most of my identity carved in those teachings. But I am gladly now part of the LGBTQ plus community and I am now advocating on behalf of those hurt by the church, especially minority groups, women, LGBTQ. And I'm just so honored to be co-hosting this podcast with both of you. And I'm excited for so many more messy conversations. Well, I'm really excited to have you on this journey with us, Lola. You have been on the podcast many, many times, one of our most frequent guests. But now to have you as a permanent co-host, I think you bring a awesome perspective. And I can't wait to unpack that over many, many conversations. Uh, listeners, you know me. I'm Jason Elam. I am a recovering evangelical, was a local church pastor in various capacities over many, many years, way too many years. And I still wake up every day realizing that for so long I talked about a God that I didn't know, but I thought I knew. I was often wrong, but never in doubt. 
And so I am in the process, a lifelong process of unpacking all of the toxic theology that was steeped into me as a child. And a lot of that stuff came to the surface this week. As we're recording this, Lola and Kyle, the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade this week, uh, setting the nation on fire, basically, politically speaking. And uh, there's all kinds of takes online in response to that. But I couldn't wait to hear what you guys had to say about that. So Lola, um, I'd love to hear your take on that first. How did it hit you when you heard the Supreme Court had overturned Roe versus Wade? So at first, uh, when I heard about it, I wasn't, uh, I hate to say this, I wasn't all that concerned because I realized they were just giving power back to the states, which was like, okay, I mean, that's fine. Um, Now we get to choose, I guess. But the more that I've thought about it, I realized a lot of those states didn't even want to do away with segregation for the longest time. This is probably a... not the best way to protect uh, women's health care. So honestly, now I'm just sorrowful for the whole thing. And I'm I'm watching all these women around me kind of rising up against this. And it's it's very powerful to see what could happen in a couple of days after this being overturned. Because honestly, some people are becoming homicidal and mailing uteruses. And that's fine, you know? That's fine for other people to do, but it scares the shit out of me. Before I didn't really take a stance on abortion because I used to be so heavily, you know, pro-life, really just pro-birth. And I feel ashamed for that. And so I've kind of backed into a corner in regards to all this. But now I feel like I have to take a stand with everybody else. But uh, women are fucking badass. So um, I feel bad for the Supreme Court justices for what's about to happen with them. And just to be clear to our listening audience, Lola, you live in Alabama, right? Yes. Alabama had a trigger law that said when Roe versus Wade was overturned, that Al- that abortion would become illegal in the state of Alabama. Is that right? Yes. And I have several okay. friends that are now offering to like take people from this state to other states in order to get mm. the health care that they need in order to not die sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah. Kyle, what's your take, man? How did it hit you? How did the news hit you? Uh, you know, when they leaked the, I guess their their decision was leaked about a month or so ago, I didn't believe it. I said, no, that can't be true. That that can't be true. They they can't be going to that now after 50 plus years. And so, you know, the more I heard about it, the more I heard about it, and I thought about it. And, and of course, uh, I was scrolling through TikTok, actually, when I found out it was official, one of my TikTok friends had posted it. And I said, wow, they, they actually did that. Like, whoa, that's really serious. And, you know, it makes me wonder, what's next? You know, if you're willing to go back and change something that has been on the books for 50 plus years, that, you know, has has been a at least a, a step in the right direction as far as being more progressive, Given women the right to choose for themselves, you know, I thought, what's next? Do you go after civil rights next? Do you go after interracial marriages? Which I don't have any idea why we needed a Supreme Court decision to allow interracial couples to marry. And that just made me think, like, what's next? Was this a precursor? Was this a let's get them warmed up for what we're really going to do? 
kind of a thing. In a way, it's kind of scary, even though I'm not a scary kind of person, but it's kind of scary. And although I, I am very optimistic that things won't get bad or worse, I was very optimistic that this wouldn't happen too. So I don't know. I don't know, but it does make me a little nervous. Yeah, I think one of the scariest parts for me, Kyle, was when uh, Clarence Thomas, one of the justices on the Supreme Court, in, in his notes, in his opinion, said, we also should revisit some of these other cases, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which would overturn gay marriage yeah. in the United States and, and countless other things. Yeah. I mean, there are other verdicts he, he wants to revisit as he and the conservative majority want to reshape the court, which will then reshape the country. So it, it is a little bit scary. You're right, because we don't know what's next. And I'm like Lola, I was very involved in the pro-life movement. Very, very involved. Um, my mom worked in an office uh, that counseled pregnant women, gave them ultrasounds so they could see their baby and encouraged them to choose life. And I had felt that way consistently for a very long time. And then I think when my daughters started getting older, I started to think about, you know, what happens when, when a, a young girl is raped and she gets pregnant? And are we really going to force her to carry the rapist baby to turn and then look and see, you know, her rapist face in the baby's eyes? Are we really going to force that to happen? Uh, if, if there's a situation where the life of the mom is at risk, are we really willing to say, you do not have the option of saving your own life? These are scary times. Once it got reversed, I just got sick to my stomach. I was like you, Kyle. I heard the leak that came out about a month ago and thought, there's no way this is actually going to happen. You know, maybe they leaked it now to put pressure on folks to change their mind because until the verdict is officially released, there's still time for the votes to change. But uh, no, it, it, it happened exactly the way it had been leaked. And uh, so I'm sure that there are folks listening uh, women who are listening to this broadcast who are terrified of what could happen if they find themselves in an unforeseen situation. And uh, we just want you to know our hearts are with you. You're who we're thinking about right now as the nation wrestles with this issue and all these other issues to come. Where did you guys end up? Have you guys, I know, Lola, you said that you had started off pro-life and you never really kind of took a stand on the issue. Kyle, did you did you grow up one way or the other? No, I, I actually grew up very neutral. I, okay. I, I live, uh, yeah, I live in, a, in an inner city and um, I guess teenage pregnancy and different things of that nature was, was all around me. So I never really gave it a lot of thought. Now, I can be transparent to say that I know family members that have done it and uh, different different friends who, who have done it when they were younger. And then one particular family member as an actual life-saving measure uh, later on in her life. So I, I never really had a strong opinion one way or the other. I never really gave it a lot of thought. There, there's a lot of things on the conservative end that I never really gave a lot of thought. I, I never formed an opinion about it. And most opinions I had were, you know, opinions I picked up because I heard certain things along the way. I never really gave things a lot of thought myself. 
And I also felt very strongly that if I took a position against, then maybe I'd be judgmental because I really honestly wouldn't know what I would do if I had been in that situation, especially being a single pastor. You know, you got to protect that shield at all costs. And, and I grew up in a church environment where, you know, you, you come in there with announcing you're going to have a baby out of wedlock, then, I mean, all hell's going to break loose and you're going to lose everything you have. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why I never really formed a strong opinion because I didn't want to seem like a hypocrite because I probably would have done whatever I needed to do at that time had that happened to me, had I found that I needed to do that, perhaps. I never really had a strong opinion about it. But then as I deconstructed more and more and more and looked at it from a perspective of, but what are we really saying here? Biblically, in a sense of what we understand, if you take the Genesis story literally, well, Adam didn't become a living soul until he took his first breath. That made me think about some things a little bit differently than I probably thought of before. So I'm imagining a bunch of trolls about to like, if they listen to this, about to comment and be like, but the DNA is different. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yeah. Um, oh, can I just clarify something that you said before? Um, sure. You're saying you didn't really say much about it when you were a pastor because you were afraid of being in a situation where you and a partner may need to go that route. Yeah, yeah. yeah I never, want, okay, yeah. okay. I never talked about it from the pulpit, never. Okay, okay. You never had anybody like come up to you and ask you about it, like pregnant teenagers or anything like that? Because I mean... I'm sure you were like a cool pastor dude and stuff. I just wonder. I was very non-judgmental, or unjudgmental, or non-judgmental, or whatever the right phrase is. <laughs> I was very, you know, I grew up in this environment where it seemed like all they did was talk about sin and sit people down. And in the black church, what set you down mean is if you got in trouble, if you were on a choir or serving in some capacity, you had to be brought before the church you had to confess in front of the whole church, literally embarrassed and ridiculed in front of the whole church. Oh. And then you had to lose whatever position you had for a season. And they would sit you down. Kind of a scarlet letter kind of a thing. And all eyes were on you. And you had to carry that guilt and shame every time you came to church. You put your head down that whole thing. So I grew up in that environment. And I made up my mind very early on as a pastor. One, I wasn't going to get up every week and talk about sin. I just figured that was an issue between God and the people. That, that's 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 between you and God. You, whatever you're doing, that's between you and God. That's how my my, my uh, mindset was about it. <laughs> and I, I knew right away I was never going to sit anyone down. So if someone, you know, and it happened several times. You know, young ladies in the church got pregnant. You, you never got any no condemnation, no guilt, no shame, no how could you? None of that from me. None, none of that. So see now, I would have gone to your church. Sorry, I took us off topic from. Uh, Roe v. Wade overturning. No, no, this is exactly good. This is perfect. Okay. And I absolutely was just thinking the same thing. I wish I could have gone to that church. No, I mean, because that's, that's what it seemed. My entire thing was, do not sin because you will go to hell. Like that was the whole mission statement. It wasn't helping people like the great yeah. physician kind of thing. It was like, don't sin or you'll go to hell. And there was just... It was sin, sin, sin all the time. I don't even know what the fuck sin even means anymore. Like, <laughs> it's a man-made myth. That's what I think it is. It's, it's a man-made myth. Really? You know, when you think about it, if you look at it again biblically, this is introduced primarily to a group of people in the wilderness 
being led primarily by one person. Mm-hmm. How do you control a group of people? You tell them what to do and what not to do. And the clue is kind of there in Deuteronomy 28, where Moses says, if you do this stuff, God will be really nice to you. Actually, what he says is, if you listen to what I say and do what I say, God will be good to you. But if you don't do what I say and listen to what I say, God's going to get you. So I took it, I took from that after looking at it with these new set of eyes is that Moses used what they understood God was as a bully. I got to corral all these people. I got to keep all these people in check. So I, I need a, I need a bully to kind of, you know, say, if you break these rules, my rules, this bully's going to get you. And you've seen what this bully can do. So I, I think sin is, is nothing more than a man-made concept, a man-made myth. And I've got a, a whole lot more reasons why I believe that too, but that's just the skinny of it. Are, are you referring to Moses as the bully? Well, Moses uses what he understood and what they understood God to be as the bully. Yes. Okay. So, so if you don't do what I say, God, the bully is going to get you. So ah, yeah, yeah. the blessing and the cursings, if you, you do all these things that I tell you, that I, that I commanded you, that I, that you hearken to my voice, God will be good to you. But if you don't, God will be bad to you. <laughs> so sounds like Paul. That's interesting. Yeah. I never made that connection before. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And we've taken over the years, thousands of years since that happened, uh, what you're discussing, Kyle, we've seen religion transformed into this code of conduct. Uh, and now we've got the whole book, right? That that tells us right from wrong and helps us keep people in check. It's been keeping people in check ever since it was first published. Yeah. But there's some scary stuff in that book. Yeah, for sure. And so you know what that means, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. It's now time for Auntie Lola's Bible Story. (laughs) What the fuck? Okay, so today we're talking about the book of Esther. The book of Esther begins with Queen Vashti, who is the wife to King Xerxes in Persia. Queen Vashti was invited to a party by King Xerxes. He had a bunch of his friends there, but I don't think anybody told you that all of his friends were drunk off their asses and they wanted to see Queen Vashti completely nude, just wearing her pretty crown. So this was not the first time she had been asked to do this, according to the Talmud. And she this time said no. And... King Xerxes proceeds to fire slash divorce her and then cuts off her head subsequently. So now he needs a new queen. So he sends his scouts out and he finds the prettiest virgins to make part of his harem. And Esther was in line with the rest of the harem, but not willingly. This was a kidnapping. This was not her jumping in line. These Girls ranged between ages of what you probably thought were 20 to 30. Really, it was more like 11 years old to 20 years old because that's when girls are the best in their prime. Uh, Eventually, Esther finds favor with the king. He has a great night with her. She's charming, 
beautiful. And so he decides she's going to be his queen. So Esther has a an uncle named Mordecai who works at the palace. And he has also saved the king's life before. So he's of good rapport. He's got some brownie points on him. And Mordecai tells Esther that he has overheard a plot to kill King Xerxes and to also kill their people, the Jews. That's right. Esther is a Jew. And also she's married to her uncle Mordecai. Don't even get me started on that. She's married to him before all this happens. Treachery is afoot. Mordecai has blown the plan and Haman, King Xerxes' right-hand man, has found out that Mordecai has blown the plan and also refuses to bow down to him. Haman decides to get King Xerxes super duper drunk and have him to sign a decree that says that all the Jews on the 13th day of the month will be killed. And he signs it. Life goes on. Except when Mordecai finds out that they're going to kill everyone, he tells Esther through her servants, and then she has a choice to make. This girl is 13, 14, and suddenly has to decide if she wants to go before the king and ask for him to not slay her people and herself. So she fasts for a few days, and Mordecai does too, and some of her servants as well. Um, eventually, she decides to do this, not necessarily because she's uh, a heroine. I mean, I do give her credit where credit is due. She she was brave for what she did, but I mostly believe this was out of fear that she did this. Um, but she did approach the king, and he found favor with her, and she ended up inviting him to a dinner where she, again, invites him to another dinner, possibly to um, just stall a little bit. And then at the second dinner tells him, hello, I am a Jew and you're about to kill all my people. Please don't do this. And Haman's the person that's making you do it. Ha! So (laughs) everyone freaks out. And then right then and there, the king decides, okay, it's time for Haman to die right now. Kills Haman. And then he's like, oh my gosh, thank you for telling me, except I can't do anything because... I passed a decree and what am I supposed to do now? It can't be undone. So then they write another decree saying that the Jews can arm themselves and and kill anyone that tries to kill them. And after this, actually they do. They uh, All of the Jews end up defeating their enemies. There's something about Jewish culture where it's always like someone wants to kill us. We defeated them. Now let's eat. And now we have Purim. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so none of that was in the veggie tale. I'm pissed. <laughs> I think there was something <laughs> was in the veggie tale. Okay, so you're telling me that the king did not have a beauty pageant and a talent show to select the new queen? No, apparently it was not like The Bachelor, which I was under the impression that it kind of was, but <laughs> not that way. Yeah, no, uh, and the whole like, oh, they get. Cosmetic and spa treatments for six months is not entirely right either. I mean, they they somewhat did that. They took like oil baths and, and milk baths and things of that nature, but not... They did that like a week before they went before the king. 
which is just, okay, can we talk about this? Going before the king is such a, a dolled up word for, uh, let's go have this little girl raped. Yeah. Let's yeah. say it like it is. I mean, yeah, right. even if even if they were older too, half of the girls there were literally, it's like, it's like when you go to a party and you're just trying to fly under the radar to go home but you can't because you're part of a harem. Like, it's like that. A lot of them are like, if I can just get through this and I can go home. Nope, you can't. You just get put on some other level depending on how much they like you. The king, that is. Did you guys know that? I did not. There are like a bunch of different tiers to the harem. Some of them are like just there for entertainment. Some are there for sex. Some are there for actually being like a birthing person. But some are there just for sex out of pleasure, and then some are for childbearing. Very odd. Wow. My goodness. So it's kind of like this Bible story was, or like The Handmaid's Tale was based on this Bible story. I actually haven't seen The Handmaid's Tale. I've, I've been told to... There's a lot of forced birthing. Ah, I knew there's, there's like certain people that are set apart for it, right? Right, yeah. So Kyle, when you were preaching in the church all those years, uh, did you ever preach on this story? You know what? We, we, what we got out of Esther was a song. Uh, we, we got a song out of that. In the black church, there's a song called Soon and Very Soon, I'm Going to See the King. And <gasps> I know that one. Yeah. And there's one verse in it that says, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to see the king. And with the drums playing and the organ going and the tambourine going and the washboard going and the people shouting and running around the church, you lose, you lose the story. You know, <laughs> the story of Esther becomes this glamorized dance party that when we hit, when we sing this song, it's going to stoke up the church. It's going to get everyone on their feet and, and, and riled up. But yeah, um, I, I may have used re- uh, Esther as a reference from time to time. You got to be persistent. You know, you got to go after what you want kind of a thing. I don't think I've ever really preached the story, though. But I did find an uh, interesting fact, though, when I learned about canonization of the Bible, like the actual canonization of the Bible, hmm. that the word God does not appear one time in the whole book of Esther. What? <laughs> okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Whole book of the Bible without any mention of God. Okay, in Veggie Tales, in the Esther episode, they definitely said God. So oh, That's right. Oh, yeah. Yes, oh, yeah. our Lord, the Lord, our God. Yes. Yep. And, and Kyle, I've heard that song a thousand times and never connected it to this Bible story. Yeah, yeah. I always thought we were singing about soon and very soon we're going to see Jesus. <laughs> I did not realize we were talking about a night of seductive pleasure yeah. with the king. Yeah. I, I will never sing that the same way again, never. Yeah. Thank you for ruining that song for me. Hey, my pleasure. Same. I, I thought soon, very soon, we're going to see the king was like, soon we're going to die and go to heaven. Right. That's what I thought. Or the rapture, you know. I still don't know what the rapture really is because we never talked about that in the Church of Christ. We didn't believe in that. Oh, that's a whole nother episode. Okay, we'll really? talk about that later. Not we'll do wow. that soon. That'll be no fun. No rapture for you? No, I don't know what happens to what us then, like, or what happens to people that believe in the rapture if, if I still subscribe to that mindset of Church of Christ. Lucky, lucky you. What? <laughs> <laughs> hey, the rapture traumatized a whole generation, oh well, several generations of people. Do you know what it's like to sneak to the movies? 
because we couldn't go to the movies. You know, it's like to right. sneak to the movies and be terrified the whole time that while you're in this movie, that's when Jesus is going to come back and you're going to be left behind. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, I, I, my first movie I went to see was Ghostbusters and I was terrified through the whole thing because I swore, I, I just knew for a fact that at any minute that trumpet was going to sound. And because I had gone to the movie theater and defied my mom, that that's when Jesus was going to come back and I was going to be left behind. All of your good would be undone over a movie. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you going to call? My grandfather found out that my mom and my dad, while they were dating, were going to go see a Disney movie mm-hmm. and said to my mother, you better hope Jesus doesn't come back while you're there because if he does, you're not going with him. Oh my, which movie was it? <laughs> I don't know. Something Disney, though. Disney in the, in the 70s couldn't have been that bad. Right. Well, all of this brings us to the, the uh, topic of our conversation today. And Lola, you asked a great question in our little text chat this week about learning to trust yourself. So if you would frame the question for us, um, we, when we're reading the Bible and we know something's wrong, something's not right, can we trust that? And you framed it so well in your question. So read that for us. Yeah. So um, I just said, why does Christianity teach us to distrust ourselves and our natural instincts when we're supposedly made in God's image, chosen by Him, ambassadors of His will, things of that nature? Why can we not trust our, our inner guides pretty much? Well, you know, on the short side of it, it's really simple. Religion creates a problem and has a solution for you. It sells you the solution. The problem you created was you're evil, you're rotten, you're no good, you're incapable, you're untrustworthy, you're nothing but a dirty, nasty, disgusting piece of meat in the eyes of God. The solution is you need an outside power to come inside of you and make you clean and to keep you clean. So that problem slash here's a solution is a guaranteed way to keep people coming back, repeat customers. Religion needs repeat customers because it can never tell you that you can trust yourself because then you won't need it anymore. It can never tell you you're a divine being because then you won't need it anymore. You won't come back. So it created a problem, sold you the problem, and then sold you the solution, which really wasn't a solution. It was just kind of like a little sprinkling of a solution. Because even though you had Jesus, you thought, you still got told every week of how bad you were and how you weren't doing enough. And that's because you can't trust yourself and you're not trusting Jesus enough. So that's my short answer of it. Is simply that it it helps. It's good for business. Repeat customers, so to speak. So I have to ask too. I feel like I'm going to keep asking all the questions. So like uh, I think it was Thomas Hobbes that believes or like kind of fostered the belief that people are born bad. Whenever you're born, you're just kind of like full of sin, and then you have to undo all of that. But that still makes me question the whole. I thought if babies died, they went straight to heaven. So that too. Ah, yes. The age of accountability. Yes. Where you, once you turn 12, 12 God help you. Wait, I didn't know it was 12. I thought it was 18. What? (laughs) 
I think it's, I think it's different depending on which cult you're hanging out with. Wow. You got 18? Yeah, 18 would have, man, I would have done something with that extra oh, protection. What? Are you kidding me? I didn't even know about it was that. between 15 18. and 18 with us. It varied per like church, but we were like a liberal church of Christ. We were super cool. And it was 18. There's a contradiction in terms of liberal church of Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Same. Still far to the right of the Southern Baptist, but I mean. <laughs> we played an instrument once. Yeah, yeah, we couldn't have that. Yeah. All right, so the idea of original sin Mm -hmm. is the disease that religion invokes upon its followers so that it can sell you the cure. That's what Kyle was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. You've got to believe that you're broken in order to seek help from those who ultimately want to control you. And the best way to convince you that you're broken is to convince you that you didn't even do it to yourself. It was a generational thing. You inherited this brokenness from times past and way back to the garden, you know, when that woman took the fruit. You know, we got we all got to have somebody to blame, some scapegoat. It's always women. It's always a woman, absolutely. And And Adam even says it in Genesis, that woman you gave me, did this to me. And so there's that original sin, which totally ignores, even in the the Genesis account itself, when God creates mankind and says what? It's good. It's good, yeah. It's good. And so the doctrine of original sin doesn't even stay true to the sacred text they claim. Mm. Dum, dum, dum. So... I wanted to talk about the like distrust distrust of sexuality too, because that seems to be a theme with us in, in scripture. You know, obviously most interactions in the Bible seem to be heterosexual. And correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I would think most of them would be, yes. Okay. So obviously we know that in, in forty six nineteen forty six, homosexuality, that, that word was added to scripture. To kind of thank you, Keith Giles. <laughs> thank you, Keith Giles, for shining a light. Because <laughs> um, none of us would have known that. But but yeah, so there's a distrust and like people are born born this way, Lady Gaga. Um, so if you subscribe to a Christian, you know, doctrine like this, then you distrust your inner truth, inner divinity. Um, even when it comes to sexuality, which nobody likes to talk about because sex is uncomfortable, but I'm here to be the sex person. So <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll, I'll bear that cross. <laughs> All right. So you're, you're absolutely right. In this issue and in so many others, we were taught that we are not trustworthy because if you're broken, if you're flawed, if you're sinful, everything you want is bad. Mm-hmm. And so not only did I hear this stuff growing up, but I, I preached it for 20 years. I mean, I literally thought it was my job to make people feel so bad about themselves and who they were and what they wanted that at the end of the service, they'd come forward crying and beg God to forgive them for the lousy, despicable lives they'd been living. and. Now, 
I wish that I would have spent that time teaching people to trust that still small voice in their own heart. Because there is a real you that gets lost in all the voices of this world. And you got so many people around you, Lola, you, Kyle, and you, listener, uh, you friend listening, that are telling you who you've got to be when really what we need is to learn to, to identify that, that still small voice of our own heart and learn to trust it. But that is contrary to everything religion ever taught me. Kyle, how about you? Yeah, I mean, that's spot on, Jason. It really is. You know, I, I didn't do much of the the, you know, kind of beating people up so much because, again, I made that decision early on that I wasn't going to do that. I, you wanted a big church. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Um, what, what I, what, where I errored, what I, well, what I took from my, my training and my, my upbringing in the church was performance. Now, of course, I, I did point out things we shouldn't be doing from time to time. But a lot of, lot of what I understood was it was about performance, how much you prayed, how much you fasted, how much you came to church, you know, how good you were, things of that nature. So it's just a continual beating people up with performance, pray more, fast more, come to church more, serve more, you know, be a better Christian, da, 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 da. With the other stuff, you know, I, I kind of just felt like, yeah, you know, this is what the script, the Bible said. This is what it, this is what the truth is. You know, we just kind of got to do the best we can. It really wasn't until I started waking up from the delusion that I really realized just how bad the the doctrine of, of original sin was. I didn't know a lot of doctrinal stuff. I knew church. You know, I knew how to do church. In, black, in the black church, we know how to do church. We don't know a lot of doctrine stuff. You know, we know how to dance and shout and run around the building and, and hoop and holler and get the people stirred up and sweat and then go home. We know church. We don't know a lot of doctrine as far as where a doctrine came from, how it started, rapture, original sin, hell. We, we don't, we just know this stuff exists and we got to talk about it. But it wasn't until, like I said, I came out of that and the illusion started to disappear that I started to see these actual doctrines and where they started and how they originated and what they implied and, and how deeply embedded they were in people. And even though I didn't necessarily understand that I was teaching a doctrine about original sin, I still saw how that had got in me and got embedded in me and still was a driving force behind everything I did because I still believed that everybody was a sinner and was on their way to hell and needed some kind of help and not in order not to go there. But I understand now that, that it's, you know, again, I, these narratives to me, they're just narratives. They're man-made narratives. And none of it makes any real sense the more you think about it the more you analyze it, it just makes no sense whatsoever for a lot of different reasons. Do you guys trust yourselves now? Yes, totally, completely. One thing I realize is this, and we can all probably answer this question the same way. When you, talk, when you think about your instincts, when you think about your gut feeling, when you think about your knowing, whatever you want to call it, that has never been wrong. When you know something, it's your gut, it's your feeling, it's your instinct, your intuition, whatever you want to call it. When you know, you know. And you've never been wrong about that. And that is what we're never taught, at least from the church perspective, to trust. How do I not trust me? 
how do I not trust me who knows me? Who is me? Who knows what I like, what I dislike, who I am, what I'm made of, what I'm capable of, what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are. Why would I not trust me? I think it probably extends past the, the church too. I mean, just with parenting. I don't know, Kyle, how your parents were growing up, but I was always told like, you're doing everything wrong. So I always just felt like I was walking on eggshells, couldn't trust myself or anybody else because everything I did was wrong. Jason, what about you? Can you, do you feel like you can trust yourself now or? I think I'm just learning how to. I think for a long time, I didn't know who I was. The whole time that I was pastoring churches, I didn't know who I was. I was basically who other people wanted me to be. And so it took me moving away from all that announcing that I no longer believed in hell and some things that were very unpopular at the time to put some distance between me and who everybody wanted, everybody in quotes, because it wasn't everybody. It was just a projection in my mind, but who I thought people wanted me to be. And the more distance I have from that life, the more I'm learning to recognize the sound of my own voice and to trust it. You know, I'm still a Christian. I still believe in God. I still believe um, that we can be led by God. But I believe God leads us by the truth in our own hearts. I do believe that there's divinity inside of all of us. And I think we have to learn to trust that and to value that and to follow where it leads into truth for us. Um, but I think I think of you, Lola, because when I met you, you were so steeped in all of this toxic BS that had been steeped down upon you. And I remember the first time I ever saw you, how you looked almost like a a beaten down puppy. <laughs> that you you looked like you you carried this weight That's what I felt like. that isn't there anymore. Yeah, and. So I wonder, I wondered if you would share with the folks listening and with me and Kyle, what did you have to go through before you could trust you? What a question. First of all, what a question. I think, like you said, being so steeped in, in that culture, I think burning down the building, so to speak, throwing the dynamite into the church in my brain, not literally, I'm not an arsonist, um, But doing that and then realizing I'm standing there by myself and I'm out here kind of alone and I'm still okay, (laughs) Um, I think that was the beginnings to starting to trust myself because I, I think we all have like an inner compass that kind of is always pointing you towards who you're supposed to be, um, who your higher self is. And I think that was me sort of beginning to look inward and find that finally. So really trusting myself took losing everything and being unsure of everything. I don't know if that really answers the question. It does. I I just know that there were so many sacrifices along the way, right? I mean, people who wanted you to be a certain thing, you had to not care anymore what they thought. Yes. I mean, you had to be willing to disappoint them in order to own yourself. 100%. I even, I mean, just if you look back at in 2019 at half of the questions 
asked in the messy conversations group on Facebook, it's probably all just me being like, okay, I have no community. My mother won't talk to me. My family has rejected me. Hello, somebody help me. Just like a cry for help almost because I, I had to strip everything away that I had ever known and everything that it made me who I was. My whole identity was church and be that good evangelical, good daughter and good wife and all the, all the things that you're supposed to be, be the godly woman, be be a, a woman of God. Yeah. And I had to tear all that apart and then realize I'm not a woman of God. I am God as a woman. God is a woman. Sorry. <laughs> cue, cue that song. No, I'm just kidding. Not a sponsor. I know that there are folks listening that hear a statement like that and they're like, whoa, where does that come from? God as a woman. Can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, did you have like a realization one day or how did that come to you? Mm, kind of. I didn't want to know this about myself or open myself up to this at all. But it's kind of kind of like clairvoyance. I think we all have that in some way, which kind of goes along with intuition, I think. And like Kyle had said, just trust in your gut and it's almost never wrong. But I I'm a bit clairvoyant in the way that I can I can kind of read people based on colors that they emit, I guess in the spiritual sense. Are we talking about auras? Kind of, yeah. You can do aura reading for it. I'm really bad at it. I, I can't do it very well. But oftentimes, I'll if I'm... Sometimes I don't even mean to read people. But if they've been on my mind or my heart, sometimes a color will come forward. And sometimes I'll just reach out to them and ask them, does this mean something to you? Or something like that. Most of the time it it does. Sometimes it's like, no. And I'm like, okay, it's fine. I have a couple of colors that mean certain things to me. And that's never been wrong for me. So um, when I came into knowing like, okay, this this is okay to, I guess, embrace and step into because I've always had it happen to me, even as a child. Um, which children are much more sensitive to it. And I experienced it a lot more as a child, but I kind of had to put all that away because I kind of thought, I guess it was like witchcraft or something in my head. And I never wanted to talk about it to anybody. But now that I've entered a new spiritual path, I'm thinking, this is my power. This is, this is the thing that's helped me level up in my spiritual journey. And this is okay. It's okay for me to explore this. You know, I don't have to run around and say, I'm a mystic. Ooh, you know, I mean, it's fine if you do that, but you don't, I don't have to proclaim myself as that. I can just have it, explore it and see what comes of it. That's good. I love that. And I I really want to dive in deep into mysticism in future episodes. It really is. But really, in a nutshell, my current understanding of mysticism is just learning the language of the universe or God or whatever. Yes. Yeah. To you. To you. And it can be different for everybody. And for one person, it could be colors. For another person, it could be something completely different. But you learning the way that God or the universe talks to you is huge in figuring out who you are and your purpose 
in this life. Kyle, do you have anything like that, that, that you've kind of learned the language of the universe in your life? Yeah. Um, you know, about maybe four years ago, maybe five now, that, that's when I first learned how to take the journey within, how to go inside, how to listen from inside to, to me. You know, we, we, I was taught and I grew up in an environment where you, you were taught to, you got to hear the voice of God or you got to hear the voice of Jesus or you have to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and you, you don't want to hear the voice of the devil. So I remember asking my mom one time, I said, mom, I'm very confused. You know, how do we know if it's God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus or the devil? And she said, well, the devil's easy because he'll never tell you anything good. So, okay, that was easy. But then how do you know if it's God, Holy Spirit or, or Jesus? Because that's what we heard those, you know, that lingo in church. Well, what does the Holy Spirit say? But what does God say? What does Jesus say? You know, so, so I, I kind of thought, I grew up with this idea that there's at least four different voices plus mine inside of me. And I got to figure out who's talking here. <laughs> you know? And um, then I can go down that rabbit trail later on and talk about, you know, how I think that, you know, a lot of it's just ego, especially when we're proclaiming as, you know, as pastors, when we were pastors, proclaiming God said this, God said that. I think that was just all ego. But anyway, I learned about five years ago how to start going inside. And I, I would just get still in moments of purposeful meditation. And I would silence my thoughts as best I could and just listen to whatever I was saying to me. And then I would write it down. And I would only do this for a few minutes, five the most. And it, in the beginning, it was, it was scary because what I was hearing about me was things that I had not even considered at that time. So that's, that's kind of how it, how it took shape and form for me. It was, it was, it was through this purposeful time of meditation, getting as quiet and still as I can in my thoughts and just listening to myself. And that's kind of how it took form for me. I love it. Well, I think that's such a huge, important thing for all of us to learn the language and to learn how to hear our own voice and to recognize who we are in the world. You can't live out someone you don't recognize. And so learning who you are, learning the sound of your own voice is so important. I'm still figuring all of that out for myself. So I'm so glad to have two veterans on this journey with me, <laughs> with Kyle and Lola. But uh, friends listening, we want to know what your experience has been like. We want you to go to the Messy Conversations group on Facebook. Uh, go to Messy spirituality.org. Find this episode on the blog and comment or talk in the Facebook group. We'd love to hear from you. What's been your experience? What is the language of the universe or God of your true self to you? How have you figured out how to tap into that? We believe there's wisdom uh, in groupthink. So we'd love to hear what your experience has been like. Guys, I'm so excited to be taking this journey with you. You guys are awesome co-hosts, and I love that I get to do this with you every two weeks. And so we'll be back with another episode two weeks from now. We'll have more great things to talk about, more toxic Bible stories, and uh, we'll be talking about whatever's going on in the world. So thank you, Kyle. 
Thank you, Lola. And thank you for listening. Check out our Patreon page. You can find out how you can be a producer of this show and help us make more episodes of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.